0: this is cnn breaking news
1: you're watching cnn and we begin with the very latest from lebanon and the aftermath of that devastating explosion in beirut here's what we know so far at least 100 people have lost their lives And around 4,000 people are injured after a catastrophic explosion in the port in Lower Beirut. The blast, as you saw there, felt as far away as Cyprus, some 240 kilometres away. According to the Lebanese Prime Minister, ammonium nitrate, a highly explosive material used in fertilisers and in bomb making, has been sitting in a warehouse there for some six years. The port and nearby buildings have been reduced to smoldering ruins. The epicenter, in fact, still smoking. CNN's Ben Medwin was in Beirut when Tuesday's blast took place.
2: It felt like an earthquake and it looked like oh a mushroom cloud. The explosion in Beirut Tuesday, oh so massive, it shook the ground all the way to Cyprus, 150 miles away. The level of devastation is still being assessed, with widespread destruction stretching for miles from the epicenter near Beirut's port. Firefighters and emergency workers rushed to the scene, one that the city's governor, Marwan Aboud, described as resembling Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Local hospitals were immediately inundated with hundreds of victims, and the Lebanese Red Cross put out an urgent call for blood donations. The casualty count staggering thousands injured and dozens dead, with the number of dead surely to rise in the hours to come. Initially, the state news agency attributed the cause of the blast to a fire at a fireworks warehouse. But shortly afterwards, the head of Lebanese security said the explosion happened at the site of confiscated high explosive materials. Lebanon's Prime Minister Hassan Diab later said it is unacceptable that a shipment of an estimated 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate was stored in a warehouse near the port for six years. That is, the country launched an investigation into the cause, expecting an initial report in the coming days. The Lebanese president has ordered military patrols in the wake of the incident in a country already on its knees due to a failing economy and the spread of COVID-19.
1: And Ben Weidman joins us now. Ben, as you are pointing out there, tragedy upon tragedy for this nation. What can you tell us about what you're seeing this morning and the recovery efforts to search for more survivors too?
2: Yes, we're in uh, the neighborhood of Mar Michal, which is very near. Uh, behind that dust is the port. What you're seeing, that large building there, is Beirut's main grain silo. And it was right next to that 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 warehouse with supposedly 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate exploded at 7 minutes past 6 p.m., Uh, yesterday. And uh, what we're seeing is that there is a massive effort by ordinary people to try to clean up uh, the destruction, the massive widespread destruction that was caused by that explosion. Uh, Volunteers are out handing out water, sandwiches, people have come with brooms and shovels uh, to try to clean, clear away. Uh, the rubble. But it's not just rubble that's the problem. Uh, It's people's livelihoods have been destroyed. Shops, restaurants, uh, bars are in shambles. It's going to take a very long time to put them back and get them back into operation. But, you know, Lebanon is not just suffering from the effects of this explosion, Julia. It's suffering from a catastrophic economic collapse where the local currency has lost 80% of its value. And what we've seen since the beginning of July is a tripling of the total number of coronavirus cases. So this is a country that many people feel at the moment is cursed. In fact, one person said to me, just told me, just get me a visa, let me leave this country. it's uh, shocking.
1: Julia? It is shocking. And we're, we're just continuing to look at both the images of the devastation caused here and, and the explosion, too. And, I mean, it takes your breath away. Ben, as you've pointed out, it's economic crisis, financial crisis, health crisis here, too. And as you've said to us on this show in the past, this is a nation that imports around 80 percent of what it consumes. When we're looking at pictures of a, a port here that's literally been devastated, it's catastrophic damage. That's going to exacerbate getting food to people, essentials to people, surely.
2: Uh, Yes, this is one of uh, the side effects of this blast. Uh, The port is absolutely devastated. Uh, Every structure in there is just turned into uh, a lump, a pile of twisted metal. Uh, How they're going to get the port up and running again uh, is a very good question, and there's so little faith uh, in the political leaders of this country uh, that they simply they've failed for so long to solve Lebanon's economic problems, uh, its, other, its failing infrastructure. In fact, we're right next to the Electricité du Liban, the uh, public electrical company. Now, unfortunately, from this angle, you can't see it, but basically all the windows have been blown out. Lebanon suffers from recently in Beirut, the uh, power cuts were running at 20 hours a day. So, how do you function in a country that's bankrupt where there's very little electrical power and now you have a port, the main port for Lebanon, that is essentially knocked out of action. It's, it's mind-boggling the complexity, the multiple layers of the catastrophes that this small country is facing.
1: Yeah, it's heartbreaking, Ben. Obviously going to complicate recovery efforts uh, as we lose daylight hours as well. Thank you so much for that report there. Stay safe and uh, get that mask back on, please. I can see it on your wrist. Thank you for being there. Ben Weedman in Beirut for us. All right there've been many questions as to why these chemicals were stored in the port for so long. In Washington President Trump says he's been briefed by US military intelligence.
3: This was not a uh, some kind of a uh, manufacturing uh, explosion type of event. This was a uh, seems to be according to them they would know better than I would but they seem to think it was a uh, attack. It was a bomb of some kind.
1: Just to be clear, U.S. Defense Department officials directly contradicted the president's claim, telling CNN they see no evidence of an attack. Let's get some expert analysis now. Chris Hunter is a bomb disposal specialist and a former army officer, and he joins us now. Chris, great to have you with us. Let's just talk specifically about some of the images that we were seeing there. Two very distinct and different explosions.
4: What are your thoughts on what we saw I think if you look at it uh, from a technical perspective, the the first um, events, if you like, um, the the grey clouds that are coming up, the wisp of clouds, and at the base of it, you know, a fire, and you could see a series of sparks and flashes, and that's consistent with um, what we call low explosives, something like fireworks, something like ammunition that you would put in rifles and handguns, that sort of thing, cooking off. So it suggests to me that a fire had started, and then. The uh, whatever was being stored there, something like fireworks or gunpowder or propellants or ammunition, started to cook off. And if it's in shipping containers, what you actually get is uh, effectively a giant pipe bomb when heat's introduced to it. So that would cause the first explosion. And then moving on to the second explosion, the uh, the huge explosion um, in 2013, there was a uh, um, 2.75 thousand tons of ammonium nitrate. Um, in a moldovian flagged vessel that was uh, um, uh, it got into difficulties it went into the port was inspected and was considered unseaworthy now it was considered that the explode or sorry the ammonium nitrate fertilizer on board um, was uh, was unsafe to to keep in the ship and so it was moved into the port area now looking at the video footage looking at the seat of the explosion looking at the blast dynamics of the explosion Looking at a number of our technical aspects of it, it would be consistent with what I've seen, certainly, that that first fire caused by fireworks and low explosives heated up the ammonium nitrate fertiliser and then caused it to effectively burn into a detonation, which was the, you know, the, the huge, huge explosion that we saw um, on the, uh, the screens with a huge sort of white mushroom cloud afterwards.
1: And obviously we have to be very careful because we don't know enough yet about how that initial explosion was caused, there was obviously confusion created by uh, by the president and then his defence officials that, that contradicted that. But Chris, what about gases, the release of gases in the aftermath of this explosion, if indeed it is what we think it is at this stage, the potential eco- ecological damage as well? It's a port, there's water there.
4: there. There are two aspects to this. I mean, the first is that the uh, the grain storage silo that was mentioned in one of your previous reports um, that actually saved a lot of people and saved some damage in, uh, in Beirut because it acted effectively as a blast wall directing some of the blast upwards.
0: Mm. But
4: what we did see, of course, Ooh. is a huge blast centered in the port area. And back in 2015, there was an 800 tonne explosion in China where the, the crater basically went down into the water table and then a series of chemicals seeped in causing you know, ecological disaster, really, an ecological disaster. What we're seeing here, of course, is an explosion many, many times greater than that. You know, we're talking a sort of small nuclear yield, effectively, you know, on a par with that. Um, And therefore, you know, you're in an industrial complex inside an international port With all sorts of materials, petrols, oils, lubricants, you know, various different chemicals. I think there's a very, very high risk that some of the gases moving both into the air and some of the chemicals going down into the ground. And of course, it was on the coast, so into the marine environment as well. Um, We could see a serious ecological um, disaster uh, as a result of this in the next, uh, you know, few days and weeks.
1: I mean, we're looking at images here of, of. The immediate vicinity of of where this explosion happened or this dual explosion happened devastated, then buildings afterwards that have clearly suffered catastrophic damage. But what about the structural damage even beyond that? If we're talking about people 240 kilometres away feeling the tremors as a result of this, that the structural damage that's occurred in buildings that are even standing still must be pretty devastating,
4: too. That's absolutely right. I mean, whenever there's any sort of explosion, the the blast waves travel out radially, if you like, in all directions. If there's hard standing, then it's like a hemisphere, if you like, coming outwards. And it causes a compression of the air around it, forming what's effectively like a wall of concrete. When it's a detonation um, and something of this magnitude, it travels out at supersonic speeds, and it's like a wall of concrete hitting everything in its path. But crucially, when it comes to building design, most buildings, unless they're specifically designed to withstand blast are designed for wind loading and static loading i.e gravity basically they're not designed for forces pushing you know floors and ceilings upwards so what you get this effect is the blast wave travels outwards is that it actually pushes windows and structures inwards it pushes floors and structures upwards displacing them so they can fall down and then you also have a because it uses up the oxygen in the air it causes this sort of um negative wave as well where it sucks everything out of the building causing mm. debris on the streets and glass mm. and that sort of stuff so you know it really is a horrendous horrific for 30 years and you know it's the most significant explosion i've seen outside of a you know a military um, type of, uh, item of explosive ordnance
1: and that's what lebanon and beirut now have to deal with chris great to get your uh, your insights and your thoughts on this so chris hunter former bomb disposal expert there. We will continue to keep you abreast of any further developments in Beirut. And as the cleaning up operation begins, the recovery efforts, Lebanon, of course, facing both a human tragedy here on top, as as we were discussing an economic crisis. What more can be done to support the nation? And in the United States, small signs of progress on the stimulus talks, the latest from Washington, too. Stay with us. Plenty more to come. Welcome back to the show and straight to our breaking news story this morning. Lebanon's president is promising a transparent investigation into the devastating explosion that tore through Beirut on Tuesday. He's vowing to punish those responsible. At least 100 people have lost their lives, thousands wounded and hundreds are still unaccounted for. The cause of the blast has not yet been made clear, but the government says thousands of metric tons of ammonium nitrate have been stored at a port warehouse, quote, without preventative measures. We will continue to bring you the latest on this story as we get it. I want to turn now to Wall Street, where investors are once again focusing on science, on stimulus and on the statistics. Biotech firm Novavax says its vaccine candidate is showing promising early stage signs in testing negotiators. Meanwhile, still far apart on a price tag for U.S. stimulus, further financial aid, but apparently are making some headway. U.S. investors, assuming I think a deal gets done eventually, Stocks, as you can see, higher pre-market after three straight days of gains for the Dow, five, in fact, for the Nasdaq. As for the statistics, though, a downside surprise. ADP reporting that just 167,000 private sector jobs were added to the U.S. economy last month. That a marked slowdown from the more than four million jobs that were added in June. Christine Romans joins me now. Christine, we can talk about the job situation first. You and I very cautious about what the numbers this week are going to tell us, whether it's on jobs added or people claiming for further help here. There's a warning in these numbers, a warning to Congress too.
5: There really is. I mean, a warning that outside of Wall Street and outside of the Beltway, there is still real pain for small business owners and for people in this country who are facing what has been really epic joblessness. Uh, And it looks like when you dig into those ADP numbers, it looks like the hiring was just not coming back at restaurants and leisure and hospitality uh, kind of locations. We had seen a month where that had spiked as there had been these slow, cool reopenings across the country and people started hiring back uh, waitresses and, and chefs and cooks. But now it looks like some of that is, is slowing here. So we'll get the real number on Friday, the government number. The president uh, promised this week that it will be a big number. He won't get a peek at it until sometime uh, late Thursday afternoon. So Friday we'll know for sure just what the job situation is. But we're still down some 17 million plus jobs since this crisis started. There is a real problem, jobs problem in this country still. And that's kind of, I think, the heat that is on Congress to get something done by the end of the week. And this number likely to be politicized
1: as well. If it's a very good number, it's justification for the Republicans here to perhaps re-argue that providing greater stimulus or financial aid to people is a disincentive to get back to work. If it's a bad number, then the Democrats are going to say, look, we're still in a crisis here and we need to pay up.
5: And it's just another number in a very chaotic picture for economic news. I mean, let's be very clear. What has happened in the American economy is so unprecedented that each one of these numbers needs to be taken kind of with the, with the whole picture, right? I mean, we, we're going to get uh, a lot of maybe even conflicting trajectories here in the coming days and weeks. Always really important to look at the trend, the overall trend, and not just one dot wild data point, especially, especially if they can politicize it in Washington.
1: Yeah, those talks need to come to a conclusion ASAP. Christine Romans, great to have you with us. Thank you for that.
5: Greg is
1: Chief U.S. Policy Strategist at AGF Investments and joins us now. Greg, I know you were listening to that. Great to have you with us. The president weighing in here, talking about perhaps using executive powers to prevent people making uh, payroll tax payments or even putting himself in the middle of this and um, providing eviction relief. Can he do that?
3: Uh, unclear although uh, as we know Julia he has a habit of going outside the box actually I thought this was fairly clever to motivate Pelosi and McConnell. Pelosi's got something she really wants. That's aid to state and local governments. McConnell has something he really wants, and that's uh, liability protection for businesses. If the president just goes off and does something through executive authority, both Pelosi and McConnell could wind up not getting what they would like. So this is now, I think, now prompted them to negotiate seriously. It's going to be next week before we get a bill done, but I'm increasingly optimistic.
1: It's a President Trump-style way of bringing people together. It's uh, explosive. It raises questions, but it may just do the trick here. What's a reasonable deadline then, Greg, do you think, mid-August?
3: Yeah, I I think that, you know, obviously they're not going to meet their uh, Friday deadline, Friday the 7th of August, to go on recess. It'll go into next week, maybe into next Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, something like that. But I I, I do think that at least half of the deal is done. Uh, Money for schools, money for uh, uh, people who could get evicted, uh, money for testing. There's a lot that's already been done in this bill. What's
1: being discussed more, Greg? on the beltway at this moment a contested election result or the sort of eye raising eyebrow raising negotiations with tiktok and the livid response from the chinese that this represents some form of theft by the us government what's uh, what's being debated most
3: well, TikTok, you know, young people talk about that a lot, and I think that um, Microsoft has uh, something to be uh, happy about. If they can uh, get this uh, deal, that's an area they're not strong in. So a lot of people are thinking this makes sense, uh, but I'd say the one thing that makes no sense and is really chilling is the prospect of a disputed election. And it's no longer a wildcard long shot. It's a real possibility with the president saying that mail-in ballots are not valid, that the election is rigged. And the post office may have some problems. And the vote counters may have problems. In New York State, as you know, it took several weeks for them to declare winners in uh, primaries this summer. So this is almost looking like a perfect storm that we will not know on the night of November 3rd who won. It could take several days before we know.
1: We're in a situation with the health crisis and rising cases around the country that makes the probability of people having to use a postal vote way of of voting a greater likelihood. So it's almost a vicious circle that the worse the handling of the of the health crisis, the more likely it is that a greater proportion of these votes are postal votes. And to your point that then will create an even greater delay beyond the actual election day and raise the likelihood that perhaps people go, hang on a second, there's been cheating here.
3: Well, yes, it, that's a real risk. But I think the Republicans could be too clever for their own good. Uh, and that most people, or the majority of people who've been voting by mail are Republicans, older voters. So if if we have something uh, that calls all of this into question, uh, th- this could actually backfire on, on the president.
1: We're also waiting for Joe Biden to come up with his vice president candidate. It feels like it's an ongoing issue and uh, we hope to get clarity. We're not sure if we will. When do investors need to start paying attention to, one, that decision, but also the likelihood of a a President Biden? Because the policy shift that we've seen from this man is significant and it's a significant shift to the left.
3: Yes, it is. I. I think that for the markets, people will have to pay careful attention by Labor Day, the first Monday in September. I think the polls will mean more by then. And I think the markets have to begin to factor in a blue wave with the Democrats taking the Senate, uh, keeping the House, taking the, the presidency, uh, not out of the question at all. A- and I would have to say that in many regards, especially towards certain sectors, uh, health care, uh, financial services, defense, it, a Biden president. Residency could be a real concern, but in particular taxes. If you look at all of the taxes that Biden will propose, that's something the markets have to be concerned about.
1: It takes us full circle back to the financial aid negotiations. I refuse to call them stimulus. Greg, how worried are you by what we're seeing in the U.S. economy?
3: I'm worried we're not doing enough. Uh, there was a great piece in the Washington Post last week quoting a couple of dozen leading economists all saying, this is not enough if it's just w- one trillion. You know, you look back at the Great Depression in, in the 1930s, we, we understimulated. And I, ho- I would never think we'd make that mistake again. Ben Bernanke is warned about this. Uh, Jerome Powell is warned about this. So that's my biggest concern, that we don't do enough and that the economy doesn't come back very strongly.
1: Yeah. Greg Valier, Chief U.S. Policy Strategist at AGF Investments. Great to have you on the show, sir. As always, stay safe.
3: You bet. All
1: right, up next, we head back to our breaking news story, the latest on the deadly explosion in the Lebanese capital, a tragedy which comes and impacts a country already suffering from a deep economic crisis. The latest next.
0: This is CNN Breaking News.
1: Welcome back. Even for a country devastated by years of civil war, Lebanon has never seen anything like this—a huge mushroom cloud caused by an explosion in the city's governor says is reminiscent of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. At least 100 people were killed, thousands more wounded in the blast at a port in Beirut that sent shockwaves across the city and beyond. It's not yet clear what caused the explosion but authorities say tons of ammonium nitrate had been stored for years at a port warehouse without any security precautions. As Ben Riedemann reports, the death toll is certain to rise as hundreds of people remain missing.
2: No one knows yet how many people died in Tuesday's blast in Beirut. The destruction was so extensive the shockwave felt across the city. The emergency services so overwhelmed, it was up to whoever could help to provide a bit of comfort to the injured. Open lots turned into field hospitals. The blasts happened just after six in the evening, with what started as a fire in a port warehouse, culminating with an explosion the likes of which war-scarred Lebanon has never seen. The whole house collapsed upon us, this woman says. In an instant, lives were lost and livelihoods destroyed. Michel Haibé has come to see the wreckage of what was his electrical goods store. 40 years, says Michel. War, we've seen woes of every kind, but not like this. As if the economic crisis, coronavirus, the revolution weren't enough, this tops them all. Life was already a struggle in Lebanon with its economy and freefall and coronavirus on the rise. And now this. We got here an hour ago, and as you can see, it's completely and utterly destroyed. Uh We've been open since October, and we've been, you know, fighting uh, every month with different circumstances, the economic situation, uh, the, the it's a catastrophe. What's happening in Lebanon is cat- catastrophic right now. In the words of the Lebanese-American poet Gibran Khalil Gibran, pity the nation.
1: CNN's Ben Wiedemann reporting there from Beirut. Now, as Ben mentioned, Lebanon's economy was already in free fall even before the blast happened. Parts of Beirut are getting only a few hours of electricity a day. Fuel shortages are making existing blackouts worse. They're suffering rampant inflation, which means many cannot afford food. Corruption and unemployment are rife. Meanwhile, talks with the IMF over a $10 billion loan stalled back in July. Much to discuss. Joining us now is Pierre Ashker. He's president of Lebanon's Hotel Federation for Tourism. And he said up to 90% of Beirut's hotels have been damaged by the blast. Pierre, great to have you with us. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. I know it's early hours and you're still trying to assess the damage. But just give us a sense of, of what you've seen this morning today. What did you see?
6: It was uh, the biggest blast we have ever seen. It was like an Isaac. Uh, For sure, uh, it's a disaster for Lebanon, for the economy, and especially for tourism. We were uh, at maybe 5 to 15% occupancy because uh, of Corona, because of uh, the political problem with the Arab countries. But unfortunately, what happened yesterday is a real disaster. We do have 90% of our hotels in Beirut out of order for the moment. We have a lot of uh, injured people inside our hotels. And I think we might have a lot of hotels who are going to be out of order for a few days, few weeks. I don't know if not, maybe more for a few months.
1: Pierre, you mentioned people there, whether it's workers, whether it's the hotel owners, whether it was the few customers that you mentioned. What are you hearing about their safety? Is everyone accounted for?
6: You know, uh, uh, we have uh, transferred our people from Beirut to outside Beirut. This is what happens because all the hotels outside Beirut were... uh, in a better shape uh, than uh, the hotels in Beirut. Unfortunately, we don't have uh, sufficient room for uh, the people uh, because uh, the uh, people of Beirut, they have lost their houses and then went out of Beirut to all uh, the hotels. So all hotels outside Beirut are fully booked. And moving the people uh, who were... Already in Beirut uh, was a little bit difficult for us, but this morning we uh, used uh, another way of uh, management, and we succeeded in putting all our people in uh, all the hotels.
1: Okay, that's a, a bright spot of, uh, of good news among the, among the devastation here, Pierre. Just give us a sense of of the struggle. For, for the industry already. I mean, it was already suffering in light of the protests that we saw in the final quarter of last year. Then, of course, coronavirus. The occupancy rates must have been incredibly low already.
6: You know, it was a shock uh, for us. And, uh, you know, all our colleagues were calling uh, the uh, association to know what happens, what shall we do, and especially for the insurance. You know that we have a problem of insurance. If it is a terrorist act, if it is attacked, we are not covered. But if we are uh, out of uh, uh, terrorist act, we could be uh, covered by the uh, insurance. So the whole day we were in contact with our government to see uh, the uh, result of uh, this blast, and we are still waiting for the moment to know if all the hotels are covered. So this is a big problem for us because we have passed the last nine uh, months uh, out of clients, out of uh, people, especially the tourism were very quiet. Our airport was closed uh, till uh, 1st of May. So we were expecting uh, summer to recover a little bit from what happens with coronavirus.
1: Yeah, a tragedy upon tragedy. Pierre, what more support do you need? As you mentioned, firstly, when we're talking about insurance, you need to ascertain actually what caused this, whether it was just a terrible accident or or something else. And of course, we don't know that yet. But what more support do you need?
6: Thanks. We don't have any support for the moment, okay? Uh, and we might have a French uh, support. We are expecting maybe uh, Qatari support. But uh, till now, because of the political problem and because of the Hezbollah problem in, in Lebanon, we are losing, especially, the support of uh, people of the Gulf who were, for the last 50 years, the better support of Lebanon, financially, touristically, and uh, uh, especially with all the support of capital and investment.
1: Yes, we understand. And our hearts go out to you and all the Lebanese people. Pierre, stay safe and take care.
6: We are waiting, especially also... For the support as we have heard from uh, the President of the United States that we are going to have a U.S. support and uh, it's uh, we are really welcome for this support and we are expecting this support. We are used to the support of the United States.
1: We hope many nations have come to help you, sir. Thank you so much for joining us. Sir. Stay safe. Pierre-Akhtaveh, the president of Lebanon's Hotel Federation for Tourism. We're back after this. Welcome back and a reminder once again of our top story, the frantic search for survivors in Lebanon. Less than 24 hours after a catastrophic explosion rocked Beirut, At least 100 people have lost their lives. Thousands more have been wounded. Hundreds remain unaccounted for. And we have no clear answers as yet. But the focus now on thousands of metric tons of the highly explosive ammonium nitrate stored at a warehouse for some six years. We will continue to bring you any further developments on this story. And of course, we will take you to Beirut, Lebanon throughout the day here on CNN. For now, I want to turn to Wall Street, where U.S. stocks are higher in early trading, a continuation of the gains that we've seen in the past few sessions. The Nasdaq is at fresh records here this morning. Gold, which closed above $2,000 an ounce for the first time ever Tuesday, As you can see, got some glitter again today too. Disney also in focus reporting a almost $5 billion Q3 loss driven by a collapse in theme park revenue. But investors, it seems, were bracing for worse. There was a lot of bad news in the price here Actually, you can see it up some 8.5%. A bright spot, Disney's streaming service, Disney Plus, now has more than 60 million paid subscribers, a big plus for the entertainment giant. In the meantime, new economic data showing private sector employers adding just 167,000 new workers last month. It's a great number, except in the environment that we're in right now. It's way below expectations. We'll get a fresh look at jobless claims, people asking for more benefits tomorrow. And, of course, the U.S. monthly jobs report is out for last month. Jobs also the key focus at Upwork. It's a global platform that matches skilled freelancers with companies looking for talent. Demand for the service has skyrocketed since the pandemic began. The virus and remote working has transformed the workplace and, of course, the labor market too. Joining us now is Hayden Brown, President and CEO of Upwork. Hayden, fantastic to have you on the show. Just describe what Upwork does
7: in your own words. Thanks for having me, Julia. Good morning. Upwork is a platform that matches skilled freelancers with clients looking for freelancers to do incredibly important work for them. So we work with clients who range from small businesses all the way up through 30% of the Fortune 100, customers such as Microsoft, Glassdoor, NASDAQ, Airbnb, they turn to our platform to find skilled workers to do things like web development, design, and other key parts of their work, really when they want to flex their workforce and and tap into a labor pool that ordinarily they may not have thought of, but now has become a really strategic part of their workforce and and is is also a remote uh, workforce for them because all of the skilled workers on the Upwork platform are working remotely and that's been part of our model for 20 plus years.
1: And you're working with businesses of all sizes, to your point, across 180 different countries. So this really is about a global workforce now or available global workforce. How do you vet the skills? How do you rank the skills and vet the individuals that we're talking about providing as, as talent for these
7: businesses? So the Upwork platform really functions as a two-sided marketplace. So clients and freelancers actually rate and review each other after every single engagement that happens. And so all of the talent on on the platform has been rated and reviewed by people who have paid those people to do projects and left reviews stating how great that work was, what their experience was working with that freelancer. In addition to that, we provide a lot of screening and vetting on top of that for our clients. And so we curate pools of skilled, talented freelancers who are vetted in, ad- in additional ways, both using uh, human curation as well as machine learning to really ensure that our clients can tap into exactly the freelancers they need with exactly the skill sets required for the types of work that they need to get done immediately.
1: You know, it's interesting, people have a skill set, but not everybody can do it remotely and operate alone somewhere in the world. No one wants to profit from a, a crisis, Hayden, but you are in a sweet spot here with a dramatic shift in people suddenly having to remote work. Can you give us a sense of the kind of growth that you've seen on the platform as a result?
7: Absolutely. So even before the pandemic, people were leaning into remote work in a significant way, but absolutely overnight, Julia, we've seen huge increases in remote work. I mean, today in America, more than 50% of the workforce is working remotely. And as a company who has always been at the forefront of remote work, we've been partnering with our customers to really help them navigate this transition. And so in the last quarter, we've worked with companies like Microsoft to help them stand up remote customer support teams and things like that to really serve their customers at a critical moment when they need strategic talent that is already adept at working remotely in this environment. And so we've seen 19% year over year growth on our platform last quarter. And a lot of that was fueled by both existing customers continuing to use us and spend on our platform as well as a surge in new customers coming to the site, signing up and starting to work with freelancers in new ways. And we believe that the current shifts we're seeing in the landscape around remote work are tectonic. These are huge changes that not only have happened during this crisis, but really will be enduring because I think workers and companies are seeing the benefits of remote work and they're not gonna wanna go fully back to the old models that they had prior to the crisis. And we're hearing that from customer after customer and seeing that in the data as well with so many companies reporting that remote work will be part of the new normal for them even once this pandemic uh, passes
1: there will be people looking at this going this is a disaster for workers that want some greater job security and we'll see a dramatic shift towards greater use of freelancers cheaper labor perhaps you go somewhere else in the world if you can pay someone less than pay someone close by at home how do you respond to to both those criticisms you
7: no know, i think that this can actually be a win win for both clients and freelancers and there's a couple things that we see around that so the first one is As we talk to existing freelancers who are already part of the freelance economy, they actually feel more secure in many instances right now because they have on average five clients that they're working with, and they know that if one of those clients who may be furloughing workers or firing full-time staff in this environment, if one of those clients goes away, they actually have the safety and security of other clients in their roster that they're not dependent on just one of those as a full-time employee. And so that's one of the aspects of freelancing that actually they find very comforting in an economic downturn. So that's one of the things. I think another important factor is clients and freelancers see the benefits of a platform like ours where really the work can go to the workers. And when remote work is possible and the work can go to the workers, instead of requiring workers to relocate themselves, their families, and move to, for example, urban centers and the places where historically have been kind of the centers of gravity for a lot of larger companies, there's a ton of benefits. One is uh, workers don't have to pay those high costs of living in those geographies. They can stay closer to uh, family and friends and be in locations that maybe are much more palatable for them where they wanna stay. And at the same time, companies can benefit from accessing pools of talent that may not have been available to them when they were in this fully on-site model. And suddenly they're tapping into skills, expertise, Workers who were not maybe part of the mainstream workforce before, but suddenly are adding a lot of value to their business and often are doing so, earning more money in those local geographies than their peers, but actually costing the companies less than what they have to pay for those same exact skill sets in the most expensive cities where historically they've focused their hiring. So it's a win-win on both sides.
1: Yeah, I have so many more questions for you and we will come back to this. My apologies for um, not taking so much time with you today because I want to talk about your business model and how you get paid too. But I like the point you made about the diversification of income stream. More than one employer at critical times can help. Hayden, great to chat to you about the business. Hayden Brown, president and CEO of Upwork. To be continued. Thank you. Thanks, Julia. All right, after the break, we return to our top story today. Countries around the world standing up to help a devastated Beirut. At least 300,000 people have been displaced by the blast. The latest next. Welcome back. Countries in the Middle East and around the world rallying to support Lebanon. Qatar today loading a field hospital on its way to help Kuwait, Jordan and Iraq have also promised much needed medical units. Iran's foreign minister says his country is ready to help in any way necessary. Britain, Turkey, France, Spain and Russia, just some of the other countries offering their condolences and support. Journalist Elliot Gottkin is in Tel Aviv, where Israel's President Rivlin is breaking decades of tense relations to declare Israel's support for Lebanon. Great to have you with us, Elliot. A rare move here. The question is, will the Lebanese accept help?
0: It seems unlikely if history is any guide. Uh, There was an earthquake in Iran, for example, in 2017. Israel offered uh, aid there to the southeast of the country and that was rebuffed. I don't think uh, Lebanon itself is likely to uh, accept uh, Israel's offer of aid. Of course, there's little love lost between the two countries. Indeed, Lebanon is one of just a handful of countries that Israel still designates as an enemy state. Uh, And there have been a number of wars between the two countries and also between uh, Hezbollah militants based in Lebanon and Israel. And perhaps that's one reason why the uh, foreign minister, Gabi Ashkenazi, went on television shortly after these reports came out yesterday to say that Israel had nothing to do with it. Uh, Indeed, saying that uh, there's no evidence to suggest that this is anything other than a tragic accident. Uh, His ministry, meanwhile, uh, offered, put out a statement uh, offering humanitarian aid to the Lebanese government. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu instructed his National Security Council to liaise with the uh, United Nations Special Coordinator for Middle East Peace here to see how Israel could help. And as you say, President Rivlin tweeting out in uh, Hebrew, English and Arabic saying, we share the pain of the Lebanese people and sincerely reach out to offer our aid at this difficult time. And you know, just a week ago, the words were very different between the two countries. Uh, The Israeli army saying that it foiled an attempt a squad of Hezbollah militants uh, infiltrating onto the Israeli side of the occupied uh, Golan Heights. Uh, And Israel then saying that, look, uh, if anything happens to Israel, and even the retaliation from Israel would be basically on the head not just of Hezbollah, but also of the Lebanese government. Of course, today very much the focus is on this uh, unfolding tragedy. And just one more thing to share, Julia, the mayor of Tel Aviv, has said that the municipality, the town hall building in the centre of Tel Aviv, will be lit up this evening in the flag of Lebanon. So a gesture of solidarity uh, from the mayor of Tel Aviv towards the Lebanese people.
1: Yeah, I saw a tweet from the Israel Defence Forces saying this is the time to transcend conflict. Journalist Elliot Gotkin, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that update there. And that's it for the show. I'm Julia Chasley. Stay right here. CNN covering the latest from Beirut throughout the day. You're with CNN.
0: Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like.